We thank you that we can bring our sins to Jesus. And if we have been raised with Christ, then help us to seek the things that are above where he is, seated at your right hand. Set our minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are on the earth. For we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. So, Father, let us put to death what is earthly in us, sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is all idolatry. On account of these things, your wrath will come against this world. And in these things, we too once walked when we were living in them. But now as those who have been redeemed, Lord, we must put them away. Help us to put away our anger and our wrath and our malice and our slander and obscene talk from our mouths. Help us to be truthful and to not lie to one another because we have put off the old self with its practices. And we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. Thank you that in your church there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And so help us as your redeemed people to put on, as your chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, that in 2024 we would be kind to one another and we would have humility that we would be meek like your son and we would be patient with one another, that we would bear with one another, Lord, that if we have a complaint against one another, that we would forgive each other as you have forgiven us and that above all these things as your redeemed people this year, we would put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. May your peace, Jesus, rule in our hearts. May your word, Jesus, dwell in us richly and I pray that we would teach and admonish one another with wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and that there would be thankfulness in our hearts toward you, and that whatever we do this year, in word or deed, we would do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to you, God, through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may be seated. Today is a little bit different. I tell you that 50 Sundays a year, you will see me or someone else in this pulpit expositing the Word of God, teaching verse by verse through a passage of Scripture, but a couple Sundays a year, we like to stop and we like to present a sketch of a hero of church history so that we can be connected to those who came before us and understand sacrifices that they made. And we would also be spurred on to faithfulness by the cloud of witnesses, knowing that we are not alone. We met William Tyndale back in July. Lord willing, in 2024 in July, we will meet the greatest American theologian we've probably ever had, Jonathan Edwards. But today, on the eve of the new year, a year in which we are encouraging all of you to read the Pilgrim's Progress, we are going to work through the life of John Bunyan, exegete the life of John Bunyan, if you will. And time is precious this morning, so I'm going to get going. John Owen is one of the greatest and most brilliant minds that England ever knew. 
He held a Doctor of Divinity from Oxford along with three other degrees from that university. Eventually, he became the vice chancellor of that very prestigious school. He was a man that was called on to address parliament in tumultuous times. He was a personal chaplain to Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell. For many people, John Owen is the pinnacle theologian and thinker of a time on the British Isles where a bunch of spiritual giants were raising up and were, were, uh, were rising up and were being produced. People say, Owen is the mountaintop, Owen is the pinnacle, and yet John Owen, when asked by King Charles II why he loved the preaching of an uneducated tinker named John Bunyan so much, Owen said, could I possess the tinker's abilities to preach, please your majesty, I would gladly relinquish all my learning. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of Baptist preachers, shared the same admiration for the man that we are profiling today. He recommended Bunyan's writing to his uh, congregation, Metropolitan Tabernacle, and he said to them, prick him anywhere. His blood is a bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. And so who is this man? John Bunyan. How can a man who barely had the equivalent of a modern-day sixth-grade education write a book that has sold more copies than any other book outside of the Bible itself? A man that John Owen and Charles Spurgeon will look at and say, This is a model for us. This is a man that we should aspire to be like. What can we learn from him? And these are the questions that I hope to answer today as we look at John Bunyan's life. So let's go to the Lord right now and ask him to bless this time. Father, today is a little different, but on the eve of the new year, Lord, I pray that we would be motivated by what we hear regarding the life of one John Bunyan, a man of God who loved you but did not always love you, a man of God that you picked up out of some pretty rough briar patches. He was a very crooked stick, and you made a straight line out of him. And we can follow that straight line, and what we find at the end of his life is devotion to your son. What we find in him is someone who we can imitate as he imitated you. And so I pray, Father, that as people who live in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile toward the Christian gospel, as people who struggle with courage to share your word boldly out in the marketplace of ideas, I pray, God, that you would give us some steel in our spine after we take a look into the life of John Bunyan. We need it, Lord. We need the boldness that your spirit provides, the same boldness that you gave a man like Bunyan. Would you provide it for us today, God? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John Bunyan was born to Thomas and Margaret Bunyan in 1628 in Elstow, England, which was uh, a little area a couple miles from Bedford. Bedford really is the central location of John Bunyan's life. It was about seven hours away from London via horseback. 
This was not a man born into destitution, but he was born into poverty. His family had a little, but they definitely did not have a lot. His father was a tinker. Now, a tinker is actually a very manly job. But because of Tinker Bell, when we hear Tinker, it doesn't sound very manly, right? But it was an incredibly masculine job. He would travel around with this bag of tools on his back, and he would make pots, and he would uh, repair pots and, and, and repair pans and other metal items that you might have around your, hel- uh, your house or around your, your shop. And so that's what Bunyan's father did. It was a blue-collar man. Bunyan was baptized as an infant at the local Elstow Abbey. That was the place that his family attended church. But Bunyan was far from the star pupil of his Sunday school class. From a young age, he was known for his ability to string together profane words. He was, as a child, known for cussing and for kind of carousing about town. He was a strong, tall kid, he had red hair, and he had a filthy mouth. Here's his own words. He said, I had but few equals, especially considering my years, which were tender, being few, both for cursing, swearing, lying, and blaspheming the holy name of God. As a child. And Bunyan did not keep it to himself. He infected other people with his behavior. He ran the streets with a gang of unruly kids, and he was the ringleader. And yet, even at this young age, the Lord was drawing this depraved, sinful little soul to himself. Bunyan said he would often have nightmares as a child about God's judgment coming down upon him. His father was completely uneducated, and he wanted something better for his son, so he made sure that John had the tools to be educated. But this came to an end when John Bunyan was nine years old. His father needed help in the family business, and so John took up on-the-job training to be a tinker like his dad. He traveled with him, and he learned from him, and he was preparing for a career to be a tinker. This means that John Bunyan ended his formal education, as I mentioned, with what amounts to a sixth grade education. My son Beckett, who is going on uh, 13 years old, uh, Beckett, he has a, a, a better education than John Bunyan had when he essentially dropped out of learning. In 1644, when John was 15 years old, a terrible sickness swept through Bedford, and it touched his family in the worst of ways. He lost his mother when she was only 41. On June 20th, 1644, he walked in her funeral procession, having no idea that one month later he would do the exact same thing when they buried his 13-year-old sister Margaret, who died from the same disease. Margaret was John's best friend in his home. And the loss must have been devastating for him. And as if all of this was not hard enough to stomach, within weeks of his sister's death, there was a new woman sleeping in his mother's place in his parents' bed because his father remarried very, very quickly. With all that said, the chaos in Bunyan's home is a microcosm of what's going on in the nation of England. 
The England that John Bunyan was born into was one that had great turmoil. A century before the events in Bedford, King Henry VIII had broken from the Catholic Church so he could gain control of the Church of England. He wanted to appoint his own bishops. He wanted to tax the church for his profit. And he wanted to set the rules, including ones, regarding his ability to annul a marriage. And this took place in 1534. But in the decades that followed... There was a deadly ping-pong in England between Catholicism and Protestantism. Henry's son Edward was the Protestant boy king who reigned six years. He steered the country hard in the direction of Reformation. His sister Mary, who came to the throne after his uh, very untimely death, was ardently Catholic. She took the nation in the complete opposite direction, killing hundreds of dissenters in the process. And then her sister Elizabeth, who came after Mary's short, mercifully short reign, presented sort of a middle ground, a Protestant England that a Catholic could endure. But for many in England, Elizabeth did not go far enough. There were a group of preachers and Protestants who rose up and said, the church has to carry on the momentum of the Reformation. The church must keep reforming. And they saw Elizabeth's vision as a compromise and so they sought to purify the Church of England of all traces of those old Catholic ways. And these people were called Puritans. John Bunyan grew up in a country where the Puritans and the crown were at odds. After Queen Elizabeth's death, King James came to England's throne. If you have a King James Bible with you this morning, then you know him. He reigned until 1625 when his son Charles I ascended to the throne. And this is when things really get dicey. Charles was a man who believed that as the king he had a divine right to rule. And when Parliament would not go along with his plans, then he would simply dismiss them. In fact, he dismissed them for a full 11 years and ruled without them starting in 1628. And that left England barreling towards civil war throughout John Bunyan's adolescence. In 1640, Charles finally recalls Parliament in order to secure funds for a war with the Scots. Parliament had demands if these funds were going to be released. And when the Crown and Parliament could not agree on the balance of power or on things like public worship because Parliament had Puritan leanings or the spending of money, the tensions boiled over. And on my birthday, October 23rd, 1642, the Battle of Edgehill, that's not, 1642 is not my birthday. That would be incredible, but you, you get what I'm saying. 1642, 23rd of October, the Battle of Edgehill took place. Some of you live in a neighborhood called Edgehill around here. So the Battle of Edgehill takes place, and the conflict between Charles's royalists and the parliamentarian forces are underway. One side fights for the crown, the other side fighting in Oliver Cromwell's new model army are standing up for the beliefs of Parliament. Now you might wonder, why talk about all this English history on a day where we're supposed to be talking about John Bunyan? Well, the reason is, is that this push and pull between the crown and Parliament would constantly stick its head in John Bunyan's business and interrupt his life. Throughout the entirety of his life, he was affected by this conflict. And that starts with him as a young man going off to fight at barely the age of 16 on the side of Cromwell and Parliament in the English Civil War. He served in a garrison of 800 soldiers. 
He recalls a near-death experience he had in the war where someone took his place on duty for the day. He says, when I was a soldier, I with others were drawn out to go to such a place to besiege it. When I was just ready to go, one of the company desired to go in my room, to which when I had consented, he took my place. And coming to siege, as he stood sentinel, he was shot in the head with a musket bullet and died. And Bunyan remembered this all throughout his life, that it very easily could have been him. He included it in his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. God, who numbers our days, had sustained his life. The war officially carried on for nine years, but Bunyan's involvement winds down after the first leg ended when King Charles is captured in 1646. Sometime around 1647, Bunyan seems to return to Elstow, the place of his birth. But as for England, things are far from peaceful. In the years that follow, King Charles would escape from prison only to get recaptured. A second conflict breaks out in 1648. Cromwell's side is victorious again, and the King of England is put on trial for high treason in January of 1649. And on January 30th, 1649, The king of England is beheaded. England becomes a commonwealth, and by 1653, Oliver Cromwell is the head of the state. He is Lord Protector. And during this time, churches and preachers that sought to operate outside of the authority of the Church of England enjoyed a golden age of religious freedom. Puritanism is running wild with glee throughout England. But John Bunyan was not quite ready to seize the day. He was not quite ready to use his freedoms for unyielding devotion to Christ. The military reforms many bullheaded men. It reforms some of you, right? But not John Bunyan. The first thing of note is that Bunyan marries. We really don't know the name of his first wife, but there are a lot of indications that her name was Mary. The biggest of which is that their first daughter was named Mary, and it was customary at the time for a mother to name their firstborn daughter after themselves. This woman came from a family that was in poverty. She brought no funds to the marriage. The only dowry that was really offered was two books that her father had given her, The Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven by Arthur Dent and The Practice of Piety by Lewis Bailey. And those are books that Bunyan read with his wife, and they seemed to have an effect upon him. They built a home together in Elstow on the road to Bedford. They moved into it in early 1649. Bunyan starts going about the work of his father. He becomes a tinker, but he's also a bit of a carouser. He's known around town for cussing. He's known for doing whatever he wanted to do on the Lord's Day. He had a reputation for ungodliness. But there are two incidents that made Bunyan start to rethink his life a little bit. First of all, one day, he was standing out in front of a shop, and he was cracking off cuss words, and he was blaspheming the name of God. And the woman who owned the shop had a reputation for being a really nasty and vile woman herself. Everybody knew she had a foul mouth. But this woman who had a reputation for being so vile, she came out and she said, John Bunyan, you must be the most ungodly man that I've ever met. And that bothered him. He was like, if this horrible woman thinks that I'm ungodly, how bad must I be? The second thing that really messed him up 
is that he was playing a game of tip cat on the Lord's Day. Now tip cat was like this kind of a forerunner to cricket. And Bunyan's out in the field and he's playing and he felt like he heard a voice in his heart say, you can have thy sins and go to hell or you can give up thy sins and go to heaven. Bunyan says, at this I was put to an exceeding maze. Wherefore, leaving my cat upon the ground, that's the little ball that they used in the game, I looked up to heaven and was as if I had, with the eyes of my understanding, seen the Lord Jesus looking down upon me as being very hotly displeased with me and as if he did severely threaten me with some grievous punishment for these and my other ungodly practices. Alongside these incidents, his wife was about to give birth to his first daughter, Mary, who would be born blind. The birth of a child can have a dramatic effect upon a man, especially when that child has special needs. And this also seemed to really impact John Bunyan. And so he set out to reform himself. As we'll find out in a few minutes, he was a man of incredible resolve. He was incredibly strong-willed. And so he decided, you know what? I'm going to cut out all sinful recreation on the Sabbath. I'll stop my cussing and I'll be faithful to the church. And he did this with a level of success. He even served the abbey by pulling the ropes for the bell tower because he was a bit of a musician. He was able to externally modify his behavior, but that's all it was. It was external changes. And we should be warned about that. You can come to church you can participate in it. You could even pull the ropes of the bell tower, if you will. You can serve. You can get involved. You can do all those things. You could externally modify your behavior to fit in with what's going on in the church. I'm not cussing. I'm not doing the things that seem unchristian. And yet your heart can still be dead if you're not devoted to the Lord Jesus. Bunyan said he was, quote-unquote, proud of his godliness. And he said all of this, all these changes he made were for two reasons. He wanted to be spoken well of by others, and he wanted to be seen by others as a good man. It had nothing to do with a love for the Lord. Be warned of that. But the true transformation for John Bunyan began when he was in Bedford doing his tinker work, going up and down the street. He would sing a little song, a little tinker song to let everybody know he was in town, and they would come out and say, Bunyan, come fix my pots, come fix my pans. And so he was in the town going about his business and he hears a small group of women having a conversation and he spies on them. Now the women I'm speaking of were from John Gifford's church. And if you want to understand John Bunyan, you've got to understand John Gifford. John Gifford's story was not unlike Bunyan's. He also fought in the English Civil War, but he fought on the side of the royalists, not the parliamentarian side. In fact, he was scheduled to be executed for his part in opposing Parliament in the 1648 uprising. His sister came to say goodbyes to him on the eve of his execution, and she found that the guards at the jail were drunk and passed out. So she busted him out of prison. Now, you would think that this would cause this man to change his life, that he would go, all right, I got a second chance. Glory to God, I'll repent of my sin. But far from it. He became a doctor in Bedford, and he spent all of his money on gambling and booze. And he was so hateful that he was privately plotting the murder of a man named Anthony Harrington. Why? Simply because Anthony Harrington was an outspoken Christian, and he couldn't stand him. He felt like he was self-righteous, and he didn't like Anthony Harrington, and so he decided, I'm going to kill this guy. 
One night, though, he was gambling, and he lost, and he cursed the name of God. And he had never done that before. And it bothered him that he had sunk to that depth. And so he went to a small group of Christians, none other than the group that Anthony Harrington belonged to. And the man he planned to kill helped lead him to Jesus. Gifford grew quickly, and he exhibited a skill for preaching, and he starts leading this small congregation. In 1650, the same year that Bunyan's first child is born, Gifford's church becomes an official independent church in Bedford. That church will end up being one of the great loves of John Bunyan's life. One day, Bunyan is roaming the streets. He's looking for his work. He hears these women from Gifford's church talking, and what they're talking about is being born again. And he's never heard anybody talk like this. He didn't hear this at Elstow Abbey. And so he kind of hides around the corner listening to them. They speak of Jesus as if they know him personally. And Bunyan goes home pondering these things, desiring to know Christ in this way. And so he's intrigued. He comes back. He organizes his entire day so that whenever these women are talking, he could spy on them and he could listen. So he's being real sneaky, and that kind of freaks them out because the English Civil War has ended, but there were, after the Civil War, still these kind of like radical little sects of religious fanatics and some of them were looking to persecute anyone operating outside of the Church of England, like John Gifford's Bedford Church. And so these women are thinking, is this guy a spy? Like, is he here to persecute us? And so they start to ask him, like, what are you doing listening to us? And they find out he's a tinker, that he's not a spy, that he has real spiritual interests. And so they talk to him regularly. And they do this for a year and a half. For 18 months, these women witness to John Bunyan. This is a good reminder that you have no clue what God will do with your faithfulness. Right? We really, we don't know. These women, they didn't say, let's go sit down and talk, and maybe one of the most important figures in the history of Protestant Christianity will come by and we can lead him to Christ and set him on a course of faithfulness that will have an impact for centuries. No. They just went... And they were devoted to Jesus Christ, and they just publicly and faithfully chatted about him as they were making shoelaces to sell in the marketplace. They never could have known it would lead to the conversion of a man named John Bunyan, who would go on to be one of the greatest witnesses to the gospel in the history of the world. You don't know what God will do with your quote-unquote ordinary faithfulness. So just be faithful. Talk about Jesus out in the open. In 2024, make, make an effort to get together with other Christians outside of your house, outside of this building, go to a coffee shop, and talk, you know, don't scream, right? But talk as, as boldly and as firmly as you desire about the Lord Jesus. You don't know what God will do with it. About a year and a half of talking with Bunyan goes by, and finally he tells these people, he, he gets up the, the gumption to say to these women, I don't think I'm born again. I fear that I'm not born again. And immediately they say, you got to meet our pastor. So they take him to John Gifford. That was the worst thing that could have happened for Satan's domain of darkness. Gifford's preaching set Bunyan's world on fire. One Sunday he sat in a hard, tall back pew in the Bedford church, listening to John Gifford preach from the Song of Solomon, applying the text to Jesus' love for the church. And here is the verse that led John Bunyan to faith. 
Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Not exactly John 3.16, is it? This is what led John Bunyan to the Lord. Gifford was preaching that day that Jesus Christ loves his church with constancy, that he is faithful, that he never stops loving her as his beautiful bride. And the two words that were transformative for Bunyan were, my love. He would struggle to accept God's forgiveness for his awful sinning for some time, but these words convinced Bunyan of the gospel's truth, and he believed. Listen to his words as he recalls going home that day from church. He was ready to evangelize the birds. I could not tell how to contain until I got home. I thought I could have spoken of his love and of his mercy to me, even to the very crows that sat upon the plowed lands before me, had they been capable to have understood me. I would love to tell you that he was off to the races and he never looked back, but that's not the case. And I want to encourage you, those of, uh, those of you who, who maybe right now are, are struggling with looking back a little bit. He never went back to cursing and carousing, but Bunyan struggled to accept God's forgiveness for the cursing and carousing he had done. Every time this baby Christian tried to pray, every time he tried to take the Lord's Supper, every time he tried to listen to a sermon, his conscience was just on fire because he kept thinking about all the ways he had broken God's laws. He questioned his own salvation to the point that he had this very dark thought. He said, maybe I'm a devil myself, or at the very least, demon-possessed. And this went on for some time. Satan hounded this man about how much he had offended God and, and tried to convince him that God could never love him. But this trial of despair ended for Bunyan because of two scriptures. The first one he encountered while sitting at home at night by the fire reading his Bible and the words of Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 jumped off the page. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Bunyan read those words and he was so relieved when he realized, I know the one who has the power to destroy the devil. He was so sick of being hounded by Satan, but he realized, I know the Lord who has authority over him and who will destroy him. The second scripture that accelerated his sanctification and did away with his doubts regarding a salvation was one he had to look for. He was walking in the field one day and realized he had been underestimating a key aspect of the gospel, which is the righteousness of Christ. He says, as I was passing in the field... And that too, with some dashes on my conscience, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness. But Bunyan said, there's got to be a verse for this, right? I, I can't just be making up things in my heart. It's got to be rooted in the Word. So he ran home. He gets out his Bible. He's searching the Scriptures. And, and he's trying to find, where is this? Where is this? It's got to be here. And he comes up on 1 Corinthians 1.30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. 
And he read this and he thought, oh Christ, Christ, there is nothing but Christ before my eyes. And understanding that his salvation was not dependent on his ability to be holy, but on the perfect righteousness of Christ, Bunyan finally felt secure. He called 1 Corinthians 1.30 gold in his trunk. We all need verses like this. We should all have truths from the Word of God we keep as gold in our trunk to drive away doubts and despair and disobedience. So at 27 years old, fully converted, committed to the cause of Christ, Bunyan decides, I'm moving my whole family. They leave Elstow and they go to Bedford for the purpose of being more involved in the life of their church. Bedford was also more centrally located. It was a more effective home base for his tinker business. But not long after arriving, tragedy struck. Just as Bunyan and his family were moving into their new two-bedroom home, With a loft on St. Cuthbert Street, his pastor got sick and died. John Gifford was only a Christian for about five years. He died at the age of 50. But his impact on his church and on John Bunyan was profound. Bunyan stood at his bedside with other church members as he died. Despite the grief that he felt, God had brought John Bunyan to the place of use. It was time now for this man's soul to be poured out in service to his Lord. His doubts have been destroyed. His faith is strengthened. His mentor has passed on. It is time for mission. Just before Gifford's death, some of the godliest people in Bunyan's congregation began insisting that he would preach and teach. They said, look man, God's given you a gift. You've got to use it. You have a gift with words. You need, to, you need to take that and employ it for the Lord's kingdom. And at first, Bunyan was like, no way. Everybody in Bedford knows who I was, knows what my reputation for sinning was, heard me cussing from the time I was a boy. I can't be touching a pulpit. But his friends insisted that he would get up at Bible study, and he would just say a few words of exhortation one day. And so he did. And as he got up and he taught, he noticed that the people were affected and that they were comforted by what he was saying. And that what made him want to, to teach more. And so he goes into some surrounding areas and he starts to teach at the Bedford Church and at other churches and it becomes obvious that there is a call on his life to be a minister. And so in early 1656, the church gathered for the purpose of setting John Bunyan and a couple of other men apart to ordain them to gospel ministry. Laymen, that they said, these are men who can pastor us first couple years of his preaching was really fiery. Later in life, he actually lamented this. He said, I wish I had talked more about the love of God earlier in my ministry, but because of what he had just gone through with all of his doubts, he preached a lot about God's wrath, wanting others to turn away from sin in the way that he did. But nonetheless, his preaching gained this reputation for being explosive, for being powerful. Bunyan said sometimes he'd be preaching and he would look down at the people in the pews and they would just be crying. And he would see the faces of his listeners, and and this would spur him on to continue the work with vigilance. After two years of using his voice, John Bunyan picked up the pen for the first time. He was responding to the heresy of the Quakers, who were denying the humanity of Christ. And he offered up 40,000 words in his first book. So if you've ever held the great Gatsby in your hand, about that size. And the writer and the preacher is off and running the age of 30 years old. 
But not everybody was a fan. Even before he was persecuted by the state, John Bunyan experienced persecution in the church. On one occasion, he was preaching in a barn five miles west of Cambridge, and toward the end of his sermon, Thomas Smith, a Cambridge professor, barges into the meeting, and he interrupts the sermon, and he says, an uneducated tinker like you has no right to preach, and your preaching on judgment lacks clarity, sir. John Bunyan responds with, when were you converted? What signs of eternal life do you have, professor? This did not go over well. Smith then writes an open letter to the vicar of the town denouncing Bunyan's ministry, saying this man has no right to preach. And at this point, John Bunyan is officially on the radar of the establishment. Compounding the perils of persecution was tragedy at home. When John Bunyan's wife was only 28 years old, his first wife, she passed away in 1658 from an unknown disease shortly after giving birth to their son, Thomas. And what this does is it leaves John Bunyan as a single father of four, two girls and two boys, blind Mary at eight, Elizabeth at four, John at two, and the infant Thomas. And he would live this way, depending on help from his church, for a full year before marrying his second wife, Elizabeth. The difficulties at home and in ministry were just tremors of what is to come. There are changing tides in England that are going to have a massive impact on Bunyan's life. After Charles I is beheaded, England is a commonwealth that is led by Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell constantly has these problems with an incompetent parliament. He dismisses them, he disbands them, gets them back together, and this goes on. After his death, his son took his place. And he's just a shadow of the man that his father was. And so while the balance of power between the monarchy and the parliament would forever be changed in England, it opened the way still for the crown to be restored, and it was. On May 29, 1660, Charles II, the son of Charles I, takes the throne, and England is a monarchy again. You might imagine Charles II was no fan of the sort of Puritanism that was thriving in the Bedford, the Bedford church, the sort of Puritanism that John Bunyan subscribed to. A Puritan parliament cut his daddy's head off. And so over a period of four years, Charles would impose strict regulations on anybody who would try to hold unauthorized worship services outside of the Church of England. He kicked Puritan pastors, 2,000 of them, out of their pulpits because they would not adhere to the 1662 Book of Common Prayer which had a lot of wording in it that was very reminiscent of the Roman Catholic Mass. You can see why the Puritans would not like it. He restricted religious meetings if they were not authorized by the Church of England. In fact, you couldn't even get together and talk about the Bible if you had more than five people. He barred and eject, uh, those ejected pastors, he barred them from even coming within five miles of their churches. And all of this left John Bunyan in a compromised position. In 1660, after the monarchy was restored, the Bedford congregation gets kicked out of their building. They begin to work with other independent churches to stand together in the difficulty. Meetings are happening underground, and Bunyan would travel around and he would speak at these various meetings. And that made him an enemy of the state. And so on November 12, 1660, Bunyan's on his way to Lower Zamzel. He is 12 miles south of Bedford. 
he's going to preach to one of these underground church meetings in a barn. He and his new wife Elizabeth knew that there was danger. The government was spying on him. He arrived, he tied up his horse, and the farmer who owned the barn said, Bunyan, there's a rumor going around that the crown is going to come for you today. They're going to arrest you here. Maybe we should just cancel the meeting. Bunyan said, no, I will not stir. Neither will I have the meeting dismissed for this. Come, be of good cheer. Let us not be daunted. Our cause is good. We need not be ashamed of it. To preach God's word is so good a work that we shall be well rewarded if we suffer for that. So he gets up and he starts preaching and there's a knock on the door. The authorities had come for John. He kept preaching for a little bit and then he went with the men The next day, he gets brought before John Wingate, who is the justice of peace for the region, a fierce royalist who had fought on the side of the crown and now is serving Charles II. And he wanted to know, what makes you think, as a tinker, you have the right to travel up and down the country preaching? And Bunyan replied, the intent of my coming thither and to other places was to instruct and counsel people to forsake their sins and to close in with Christ lest they perish miserably. And this enraged John Wingate. His face went red, and he said, I will break the neck of your meetings. And Bunyan essentially says, eh, maybe. They throw him in the county jail. They said, we're going to come get you in three months. If you agree not to preach, we'll release you. If you do not agree, you will remain in jail. And Bunyan responded with, I'll stay in jail till moss grows on my eyelids, but you're not going to keep me from preaching. There was never a formal criminal charge. Life in the jail was hard. It was small. It was damp. There would have been multiples of people living on top of each other. It would have smelled from body odor and human waste. The prisoners slept on nothing but straw. And on top of all that, you had to pay for it. It wasn't wasn't free. You had to pay your way to stay in the jail. Bunyan initially made shoelaces that he would give to his wife Elizabeth and to their blind daughter Mary, who visited him often. They would sell them at the market and use the money to pay for John's stay in jail as well as other things that they needed in life. And so this money that he paid to be in the county jail, it got him all the wonderful amenities as well as half a loaf of bread a week and two pints of water each day. That was for your drinking and for your bathing. But he was resolute. Again, I will stay in prison till the moss grows on my eyelids rather than disobey God. His resolve was aided by church members and his family. They would bring him food and and supplies. His blind daughter Mary would famously make him soup and bring it to him. As he awaited trial, the most painful thing that he experienced was the death of a son. His wife Elizabeth had been pregnant upon his arrest. She had a long labor with the baby, and the baby did not make it. And Bunyan said that as he watched his family suffer from behind the prison bars, it was like somebody was pulling flesh off of his bones. When trial finally came, of course he would not relent. He said if he was released, he'll go and preach immediately. And so they put him back in prison, and there he stayed for 12 years. 12 long, hard years, but he made use of them. He had two books at his side, the Bible and Fox's Book of Martyrs, and he starts writing. This is what the Puritans did in the 1660s. They lost their pulpits. They got ejected from their pulpits, so they took to their writing desks. 
1663, he writes The Christian Behavior and I Will Pray in the Spirit. He also wrote his last testament because he thought he was going to die there in the prison. In 1664, he writes Profitable Meditations. 1665, One Thing Needful, The Holy City, his most famous work so far, and The Resurrection of the Dead. And then in 1666, he publishes his autobiography, The Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, as well as three other works. As his writing becomes more popular, it starts providing some income for his family that was much more substantial than what shoelaces could provide. He does not waste his time of suffering. He uses it to be steadfast in usefulness to Christ in a very difficult circumstance. In January of 1672, the tension between the crown and the nonconformists starts to dissipate. King Charles II puts the Declaration of Indulgence in place, which provides a level of religious tolerance. And the Bedford Church gets very excited, and they're like, all right, before Bunyan is even released from jail, they say he's our pastor. They appoint him as the pastor. However, it would be five months before he was freed. He was the first Puritan preacher put in jail by Charles II, and he was the last Puritan preacher to be released. Bunyan used his regained freedom to preach and pastor, but it only lasts a few years. In 1675, John gets jailed again, and once more the charges preaching outside of the authority of the church in England. But this second imprisonment is when he pens his greatest work. He writes the great allegory for the Christian life, a pilgrim's progress. And when he finished it, he sends it around to all his Puritan friends, and they say, you ought to keep that to yourself, man. They say, this is too weird. Nobody had ever seen writing like this. It wasn't the usual Puritan business of a a seven-point sermon on one verse. It was a long allegory with all this poetic language and vivid imagery, and the world really had never encountered writing of this nature But Bunyan, thankfully, doesn't listen to his friends. He publishes it. And the world learns the story of Christian, a man who leaves the city of destruction, seeking seeking out the celestial city. On his way, he experiences all sorts of worldly characters who try to dissuade him, as well as godly characters who help him. And he experiences everything from conversion to persecution to death. Over 100,000 copies are sold in the first decade. To date, it has been translated into over 200 languages. It has at least 1,500 editions, and the book has never, for a minute, been out of print. There's only one book that's done better. It's this one, the Bible. And like many of the books of the New Testament, it was written by a man in prison chains. Finally, on June 21st, 1677, John Bunyan is released from prison for good. And oddly enough, it comes about because of the man we started with today. John Owen, who was prolific and he was this preeminent theological mind, he used his political pull to get John Bunyan out of jail. Owen was determined that the tinker would preach again. And so Bunyan, in classic Bunyan fashion, makes good use of the next 11 years of his life. From 49 to 60, he pastors the Bedford Church faithfully, and he preaches everywhere that he can. He preached so often around England, that he became known as Bishop Bunyan. Sometimes he's preaching to a small congregation on the Lord's Day. Sometimes he's preaching to 3,000 people in London at 6 in the morning. He becomes a heralded author. He carries on after the success of Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote a sequel that a lot of people don't know about, about Christian's wife, Christiana. 
He also published the classics, The Life and Death of Mr. Badman, another allegory, The Holy War, The Jerusalem Sinner Saved. All in all, he writes 18 books in the final 11 years of his life, 10 of them in the final three years alone. In 1688, at 60 years old, Bunyan gets on a horse and he rides through a storm to London for ministry purposes. When he gets there, he falls ill with a dangerous fever and he lays in bed in the home of John Strudwick, his friend, and he is dying. His final words are, Weep not for me, but for yourselves. I go to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will no doubt, though uh, through the mediation of his blessed Son, receive me, though a sinner, where I hope we ere long shall meet to sing a new song and remain everlastingly happy, world without end. They buried him in Bun Hill Fields, a graveyard in London that many Puritans and nonconformists were laid to rest in. His grave, appropriately, is within shouting distance of John Owen. Owen was always adamant that Bunyan, the uneducated tinker, would be seen as a spiritual giant right along with the rest of the highly educated Puritan preachers. And in the end, he had his wish. Bunyan's body was planted with the other redwoods like Thomas Goodwin and Isaac Watts and the Baptist divine John Gill. And one day when the Lord Jesus returns, Bun Hill Fields is going to explode as the saints are resurrected. The band's going to come back up and lead us in our final song. And as we close out and we consider Bunyan's life, I want to say that this man was a pilgrim who poured himself out for the glory of God. He lived all of life, whether he's free or whether he's locked up for the glory of King Jesus. We have no reason to believe Bunyan did not experience the sweetness he describes at the end of his famous allegory. These words are particularly poignant for us today, having lost a dear brother this weekend in this church. Just as the gates were opened to let in the men, I look in after them, and behold. The city shone like the sun, the streets there were paved with gold, and on them walked many men and women, young and old, with crowns on their heads, palm branches in their hands, and golden harps to sing praises with. We really don't know what lies ahead of us in 2024. This could be a year in which we suffer. We're walking into it suffering. We also anticipate that it'll be a year filled with triumphs. And for many of us, it could be the last year we have on this earth. We never know, regardless of how old we are. And so then, as we approach 2024, in the manner of Bunyan and in the model of Christ, Pour out every ounce of your life for the glory of God. Your talents, your gifts, your suffering, your time, your words. If you can sing, sing. If you can write, write. If you're a skilled evangelist, evangelize. If you're a behind-the-scenes servant, then sweep hard behind that curtain. But whatever you do, give everything. The time is short. The kingdom is at hand. This is no time to hold back. It's a time to give it all. Be like the tinker from Bedford. 
bleed Bibline, be a prisoner for Christ, and be a faithful pilgrim. Father God, I thank you for the lives of faithful men and women. God, I can look back at a John Bunyan and rejoice at the example he's given, but I can also look out over this congregation this morning and see people that are hurting and yet steadfastly loving and obeying you. And it is just as heroic. Help us, Father, those who may be struggling this morning, feel like they're hanging on to faith by a fingernail, to look around at the giants, not just in the past, but in the present, in these pews, Lord, or these movie theater seats. Oh, Lord, please, please help us to see the blessing of the local church, to be inspired by the faithfulness that is in our midst, that it would spur us on to be faithful, and that we would be like the tinker from Bedford, resolved that the moss would grow in our eyelids before we would disobey you. We love you, Lord. Pour us out for yourself in 2024. And then we ask that you would gather up our labor, our labor and that you would bear fruit for your glory. You deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen.